This is VLX number 108. He will restore all things. We are in Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, your only patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. Happy Easter, Christ is risen. As I said before, we might be going to two VLXs a month and two CPXs a month because of my schedule. Uh, my schedule is getting a little bit overwhelming these days, um, often due to urgent situations and correspondence. But as I said before, maybe we can keep going on a couple videos a week. Just pray for my discernment and time management. Uh, either way, please send friends to catch up on this series. And also a great big thanks to all my donors who keep this series and CPX and TCE Thanks to my donors who keep all of this free for non-donors and for spiritual benefactors. God give you his peace. and nomine patri sefiti et spiritu sancti. Amen. God, O oh Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. In nomine patri sefiti et spiritu sancti. Amen. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elias must come first? But he answering said to them, Elias indeed shall come and restore all things. But I say to you that Elias is already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind. So also the Son of Man shall suffer from them. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them of John the Baptist. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. Okay, so if you remember, the last two VLXs was the Transfiguration, and now the disciples are coming down the mountain. So I'm going to suggest we start with the imaginative way. Imagine yourself coming down Mount Tabor in the evening. You know, St. Ignatius and St. Teresa of Abel, they allow some artistic license in mental prayer. And I realize a lot of the ones that I placed you in are in the day, um, place yourself in the evening in Israel. There is nothing like Israel in the evening. It really is just so beautiful. So imagine coming down Mount Tabor with Jesus and Peter, James, and John. And who do you want to picture as Jesus? You know, personally, I frequently picture Jesus as Jim Caviezel, as I believe the movie The Passion of the Christ was quite nearly inspired in its setup. Uh, so I often like to picture Jim Caviezel when I'm doing the imaginative way of prayer. Um, but then, in some sense, other other days, it's uh, the face of Christ is a little hidden or it, it might look like somebody else. Um, so you can use Jim Caviezel if you want, but there's uh, um, a lot of different ways. And, and just to have Jesus reveal his face to you. One of the things I want to mention today on the imaginative way of prayer is the intimacy of friendship. You know, if you look at St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila 500 years ago, these two saints, they really understood the infinity of God as best as a human can on this earth, at least, because they called God his majesty. They understood there was an infinite chasm between God and man, and so they always refer to God as his majesty. But because of the incarnation, these two great Spanish saints, uh, they, they understood that once we recognize Christ as God and we are not, Christ invites us to recognize not only his divinity, but also this intimacy of friendship. Now, I know this idea of friend of Jesus is misused by a lot of progressive Christians today. But I, I mentioned these two great saints from the 16th century to show that old school Carmelites, old school Jesuits, and old school Franciscans 
they do understand we can speak of this intimacy of friendship with Jesus uh, once we make sure we also recognize him as God and Savior. So yes, God is Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior, but he's also your friend. And so really enter into that intimacy of the friendship coming down Mount Tabor this evening in Israel if you're doing the imaginative way of prayer. Just picture this beautiful evening in Israel and ask yourself, what would you talk to Jesus about? Besides your love for him uh, and thanking him for his passion and resurrection this Easter season, I suggest this. Talk about your problems and the things you're thankful for. However, make sure that the time you spend thanking Jesus at least equals the amount of time you're spending in petitionary prayer. St. Ignatius of Loyola and St. Teresa of Avila They call this conversation the colloquy. It's actually part of the old school way of mental prayer. The colloquy is nothing else besides a conversation. So yes, we are called to have these intimate conversations with Christ as a friend. I realize it's misused by progressive Christians today, but that should not stop you um, from doing what the saints have taught us, to really speak to Jesus as your friend. Now I want to talk about Elijah also called Elias. Elias is closer to the Greek, so I'm going to call him Elias today. He comes in uh, to really the whole section. Uh, but again, Elijah, Elijah, what most of you know is Elijah, the same as Elias. Okay, now, this is going to sound a little bit boring here, but you've got to keep this straight in your mind. There's actually three comings of Elias. Two are literal, and one is figurative. The first coming of Elias. The first coming of Elias was around 900 B.C., when Elias himself, literally in the flesh, was born and sent to prophesy for, and in some sense against, the northern ten tribes of Israel, which had just broken from Jerusalem and the lower two tribes of Judah. Uh, Try to keep this timeline in your mind because it really plays into today's section. So first coming of Elias is 900 BC. Elias is really born. Does he really die after that? No, he goes to a paradise. When does he come back? We're going to get to that in a minute. Okay, second coming of Elias in some sense is figurative. We knew, the Jews knew, before Christ was born, that sometime before the Messiah would be an Elias-like prophet uh, that even, keep this in mind, even the bad players in the first century, like the Pharisees and the scribes, as we're going to see in a minute, even they knew he must come because it's in Malachi or Malachi, as we often call that prophet. Okay, who is that? Well, that's obviously John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not literally Elias, but again, we can say in some sense he's figuratively Elias. He is this Elias-like prophet who is there to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's obviously born around 1 BC, and he dies around AD 31 or 32. Okay, but remember, the real Elias didn't die. We talked about that in the last VLX. Where is he? He's in some type of paradise. Okay, so third coming of Elias. He will return literally in the flesh, because he hasn't died, to prepare the final groupings of Jews on this planet at the end of time to help them acknowledge Christ as Messiah and God. So let's recap. Three comings of Elias. Two literal bookendings of a figurative coming of Elias. Two literal bookendings of Elias coming and one figurative but in a real person. Again, 900 BC is the first literal coming of Elias. 1 BC is the first and only figurative coming of an Elias in a real person named John the Baptist. And finally, the third coming of Elias just before the end of the world is the second and literal coming of Elias during the time of the Antichrist just before Christ returns. Now, everything I just told you, you can find in the doctors of the church like St. Robert Bellarmine. So 
All of what I just told you is dogmatic. It's not private revelation. It's not devotional. It's actually part of divine revelation. It's part of the deposit of the faith, even though most Catholics don't know it. But anyway, these three comings of Elias, or Elijah as we're used to calling him, these three are super important to understand the conversation that Jesus is having with Peter and James and John on the way down that mountain right after the transfiguration. So first verse today is Matthew 17, 9. Chapter 17, verse 9. And by the way, you may have noticed that today I use the Douay Rhymes version of the Bible. That's just to keep names straight with Lapide, who's also been translated into the English by people at Loretto, who also prefer the Douay Rhymes Bible. Now, I know that more than half of you want me to switch to the Douay Rhymes, and I, I love the fact that you love the Douay Rhymes Bible and that you want me to switch, but I just find it too antiquated. So please forgive me as I continue to use the ESV, which is the same as the RSVCE. I find that the ESV and the RSV is um, simply the best happy medium between the dynamic translations and the literal translations. And I find that especially important on this series as we consider the Greek more than the Latin since the New Testament was written in Greek, not Latin. But I'll say this, hopefully people even following in non-English Bibles, I know we have listeners from around the world, can learn something from this series that tries to use this happy medium translation and as we look at the Greek. So I do try to have a wide-reaching net beyond the traditionalists, and I'm a traditionalist myself who use the Dewey Rhymes Bible, uh, but I do recognize most of my listeners use the Dewey Rhymes for their own personal devotion, their mental prayer time, and I thank you for that. Okay, so verse 9, again in the Dewey Rhymes Bible, and as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Okay, so what was this vision? The vision was the transfiguration. But that wasn't just a vision. We know two of the three people there physically had bodies, Jesus and Elias. And then Moses, as we learned last time, uh, his soul was taken from the abode of Sheol by an angel to appear. So, the only one that would be considered a vision for what was seen by Peter, James, and John, who were also in the flesh, was Moses. But then that would basically mean five of the six had physical bodies there. Um, Peter, James, John, Jesus, Elias, and then only Moses was essentially a vision. But still, um, that great manifestation of God, and as we learned last time, it's actually even a manifestation of the Trinity. This is why Jesus calls it a vision. So the transfiguration is his vision. Jesus says on the way down the mountain to Peter, James, and John, tell the vision of no man till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Okay, now before we get to Elias, why are these three, Peter, James, and John, why are they prohibited from talking about the transfigura transfiguration until after the resurrection and until presumably after Pentecost when they are clothed with power from on high? And so we look to Father Lapide for the answer as usual. He quotes St. Jerome, St. Jerome says, Christ does not wish this to be preached among the people, lest the marvel of the thing should seem incredible. By the way, by incredible, it means like literally not believable. And lest the cross following after so great glory should cause offense. So also say St. John Chrysostom, St. Bede, and others. Father Lapide continues, For by Christ's resurrection... They were about to understand with certainty that Christ underwent the death of the cross for us, not because he was compelled, but voluntarily, out of his exceeding love, and that now, being endowed with glory, he will come as judge at the end of the world. 
So what Father Lapide is alluding to is that, um, that verse, I think it's in John's Gospel, when Christ says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. And so the transfiguration plays into this. What Father Lapide and the Church Fathers are saying is that the transfiguration is this reminder that Jesus wasn't crucified um, out of a weakness in his divinity, but in his chosen weakness in his humanity. Um, the, the transfiguration reminds us that Christ was always in control, even in the worst part of his passion. doesn't mean that reduced the level of pain. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas says his level of, of pain in a crucifixion was much higher than your average man because of the integration of his body and soul. It, it actually gave him a much higher sensitivity um, to pain. And so in all of that, we have to realize that doesn't mean it was easier for Christ, but he was as God in control and laying down his life. And the transfiguration is that great reminder to Peter, James, and John um, that the uh, the passion was no accident, um, even though it was put in motion at the, um, as far as what St. Thomas Aquinas calls the secondary causes, it was put in motion by first the Pharisees and secondly the Roman Empire. We're going to hear this word in a minute, tropologically, and you're going to hear that quite a bit in Father Lapide. Tropologically means, how do you apply this to the virtue of your life? Let me say that again. Tropologically, in patristic Bible study terms, means how do you apply this verse to the, to the virtues of your life? And so Father Lapide says, Tropologically, Christ, by making public the reproach of his cross, but hiding the glory of the transfiguration, teaches us to conceal until death the endowments and gifts given to us by God, as Paul concealed his revelations in 2 Corinthians 12.6. Lest in being praised for them we become puffed up and through pride are deprived of them. Hence, Ecclesiasticus chapter 11, verse 30 says, Praise not any man before death. And I think most of you know this, but lest means so the following things don't happen. But basically what Father Lapide is saying is that Jesus shows us through the transfiguration, don't brag about your spiritual gifts. If even Jesus doesn't want to brag about this, how much more should we want to hide our little spiritual gifts that we have? Okay, let's look at verse 10 here. And his disciples asked him, saying, What then do the scribes say that Elias, why then do the scribes say that Elias must come first? Father Lapide answers, The reason for this question was that these three apostles had seen Elias in the transfiguration and had beheld him going away. They wonder, therefore, why he departed, why he ought to have remained and become the forerunner of Christ and his glorious kingdom, according to the prophecy of Malachi, or Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, a prophecy quoted and taught by the scribes. But they erred by confusing the times. They did not fully distinguish between Christ's first coming in the flesh and his second advent in glory unto judgment. Of this latter, Elias will be the precursor, as John the Baptist was the former. Okay, so let's remember real quick um, that around 900 BC, Elias came to convert the Jews. And then John the Baptist, in the spirit of Elias, around 1 BC, came to convert the Jews to Christ. And then at the end of time, uh, Elias and Enoch will come to convert the Jewish people, literally the Jewish people still on the planet right now, uh, to see Christ as the Messiah. That he was always the Messiah, but that their people had rejected this. Let's look at verse 11. But he answering said to them, Elias indeed shall come and restore all things. Father Lapide says, That is, convert the Jews to Christ as the Messiah promised to themselves and their forefathers. As Malachi 4.6 says, 
He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. Matthew, as is usual with him, follows follows the Septuagint here. Again, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which instead of shall turn or convert has, and then here's the Greek word, the Greek word apokatastase, which means shall restore. Hence, the Arabic translates shall teach you all things. Okay, but again, the Greek is shall restore. Now, if you think through Marian apparitions a lot like I do, you might look at that word restore and think of Our Lady of Good Success. Uh, Anthony Stein did a podcast a few months ago to show that the term Our Lady of Good Success is really only a transliteration from the Spanish Buen Successo, and he shows that probably a better translation is something else, but most of you know that is Our Lady of Good Success. We're going to call it that. You know, Our Lady of Good Success is the 16th century apparition of Our Lady to uh, Blessed Mariana. And she showed that in the 20th century, all the sacraments would tank. And then things would go really bad in the Catholic Church. Again, remember, this is 500 years before it actually happened. And then what does Mary promise? She promises the complete restoration of the Church. In Spanish, to Blessed Mariana is restauración completa. So it is very interesting that we have this word restoration in Greek. And we know from Our Lady of Good Success, there was also that word in Spanish, restauración completa, the complete restoration of the church. So restoration is a really important word, both for looking at what Christ came to explain to the Jews to return to an Abrahamic faith, and also for us Catholics to realize that we have to return to traditional Catholicism, hence the term from Our Lady of Good Success, the complete restoration of the church. And that's one reason uh, that I called today's VLX session uh, with that word restore, because it's literally in the Greek there, and it ties into where we are in the church, waiting for the complete restoration of the Catholic Church. Okay, but let's return to the Bible today. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 17. Let's look at verse 12. Christ says, But I say to you that Elias is already come, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind so also the Son of Man shall suffer from them. Okay, and then Father Lapide says, Christ passes at once from the literal to the mystical Elias. Remember we talked about the three comings. The literal Elias is Elijah, and then the mystical Elias is John the Baptist. He says that is John the Baptist, according to Canon 23, for concerning John, the angel Gabriel had foretold to his father Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, verses 17, quote, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, that he may turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children, and the incredulous to the wisdom of the just, to prepare unto the Lord a perfect people. End quote. So again, Christ passes, he means in his conversation, he moves in his conversation from the literal to the mystical Elias. Okay, and then a little bit later, Father Lapide still says under this verse 12, for the scribes did not distinguish between the two advents of Christ, just as even now the Jews fail to do so. For they deny Christ has come and are expecting him as still about to come because Elias has not yet appeared to point him out. Christ, therefore, that he might, in his condescension, give a full explanation to the scribes, concedes that un-Elias would be a precursor of both his advents, comings, that is, that some form of an Elias would be the precursor of both the comings of Christ. And then Father Lapide continues, but that in the first, it would be a type-based or analogy-based of Elias, in the second and literal and real Elias. 
And he means to say that it was not because Elias had not yet come that the Jews persisted in not believing him to be the Messiah, but because they were perverse and obstinate in their wickedness. For that Elias, who had been promised before Christ's first coming, namely John the Baptist, had already come and had already pointed out Christ to the scribes, that he was the Messiah, that is, Christ was the Messiah, but they would not believe John. Therefore, continues Father Lapide, Christ adds, and they knew him not. That is, they refused to recognize that he was the precursor to Christ. The scribes refused to recognize John the Baptist was the precursor to Christ that is prophesied in Malachi. But they have done unto him whatsoever they had a mind. That is, when he reproved their vices, that is, when John the Baptist reproved the vices of the scribes, they hated and persecuted him and delivered him up to Herod, who sought his life and ultimately killed him with their approval. See Matthew 4, 12 and 14, chapter 14, verse 5 and 9 and 10. And then the Bible says, So also the Son of Man shall suffer from them. That is, in the same way they persecute me for castigating their crimes, and they shall persecute, crucify, and kill me. So in some sense, the same people who killed John the Baptist will also kill Jesus. So I'll just try to summarize all of today a little bit just to finish this up. Christ explains that an Elias-type prophet named John the Baptist will follow Elias, both trying to convert the Jews. And then, at least chronologically, Jesus will follow Baptist to shed his blood, even though, of course, only the latter is redemptive for the world. And then finally, Elias will come to again try to convert the Jews at the end of the world. This is literally Elias. So really, all three Eliases are there to convert the Jews to Christ. We're only talking about two Eliases, of course. One literal, and then one the mystical Elias, who is John the Baptist. We'll go over this one more time. Literal Elias at 900 BC to convert the Jews to Christ since Christ is Yahweh, even though he hasn't revealed himself as such. And then two, the figurative or the mystical Elias comes around 30 AD preaching, that is John the Baptist, to also convert the Jews to Christ, who is the Messiah. And keep this in mind, everybody, he's actually quite successful. Why do I say successful? Because even if many Jews who started to follow Jesus did fall away at the Passion, uh, we know from historical documents that Many of them did convert again after Pentecost. And then finally, the literal Elias, the one again who never died, returns from his paradise somewhere in the world to convert the final Jews in the final epoch of human history. And who will he try, who will he try to convert them to? Of course, the answer is again to convert the Jews to Jesus Christ. Please say an hour, Father, for me, at benedictio de omnipotentis. Patri, Sifiri, et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos, et mani, et semper. Amen.